All right, so we are continuing on in the book of Revelation, and today we've hit a fascinating chapter. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 might appear like most chapters in the Bible. Okay, it's going to be significant, it's going to be important, but this is the chapter that has one of the more enigmatic and enduring symbols and images of the book of Revelation. The 144,000. Even those not overly familiar with the Bible might recognize that as like, that seems to be something from the Bible. 144,000 chosen people. If you have ever had the uh, distinction of having Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, you will hear this image brought up as something very critical to their view of faith and their view of Scripture. So it's an interesting chapter. It's an important chapter. And for us, I hope it gets to be a very encouraging chapter because here we are reminded yet again What is the central point of this book? It's to bring comfort. It's to reveal that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lamb. The Lamb who will guide His people. I'm kind of stealing from my own thunder, the end of chapter 7. The Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God Himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's what this chapter is about. That's what Revelation is about. It's a beautiful reminder. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I would love to read from this chapter for us. It's a bit of an extended reading, but again, I think it is important for us to hear the Word of God. So let's read Revelation chapter 7. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, holding the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000, from the tribe of Asher, 12,000, from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000, from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000, from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000, from the tribe of Levi, 12,000, from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000, from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, and from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation, from every tribe, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out and sang with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around uh, the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders responded, saying to me, Those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes, and they have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they stand before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he sits on the throne, will spread his tabernacle over them. They will no longer hunger nor thirst. 
nor any scorching heat will beat down upon them, nor the sun beat down upon them. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Revelation chapter 7, a beautiful chapter. In my Bible, it's called an interlude. Because we have been, we saw last week, the seals are being opened. The scroll of history is being opened by the Lamb. And the seals are unleashing the effects of sin. War, famine, death, disease, the martyrs. Hasn't been a happy, fun picture for the past couple chapters. And so we have chapter 7 show up. And at least my translators say it's an interlude, a pause, right? A view of heaven in the midst of these dark times. It's most certainly that, but it is something much more important than that. John doesn't randomly go, okay, I know, I know the book's getting a little dark. Let's call time out. Let's make sure we go back and see the throne and get happy. He wants to invite us in to consider where we are in history, what's going on in the book. The scroll itself, John has been seeing a scroll being given to the lamb. The lamb has been opening the seals. That scroll is judgment day. The events at the end of time, right? It's been sealed with the seals of history. The things that have categorized life to this point. Unfortunately, that is war, famine, disease, martyrdom, the effects of sin. He has just opened the sixth seal. That was what the last chapter ended with. And terror has come out upon the earth. We're getting very close to the judgment day. And as judgment day arrives, the sixth seal opens and two things come out of the sixth seal. Terror and chapter 7 of Revelation. This is not an interlude. This is not a pause. This is an intentional reflection. John says, as Judgment Day arrives, consider what that day is. The juxtaposition. For some, it is a day of horror. For the evil and sinful, the knowledge that a God lives, a righteous and holy God lives and has come to reckon and balance all things. Is that a happy day? No, it's a terrifying day. We saw at the end of service last week that when the six seals open and terror comes forth, what happens? Everyone who is rich and powerful, everyone who fits every human and earthly metric of having success, of power, of being able to withstand and protect themselves, what do they do? They run to the mountains. They run to caves in the hills and they say, please fall upon us. Hide us from the face of the living God. No earthly power can stand before him. And they even ask, this is how chapter 6 ends, who can, uh, I'm sorry, verse 16, fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand against that? It's a day of terror. When God comes, it is a judgment day. All wrongs are righted. All sin is dealt with. That's a terrifying thing if you do not trust and have faith in God. But there is a second side to this judgment day. This is the side we should embrace. Not a side of terror, not a side of fear for the future. But chapter 6 ends with an interesting question. Who can stand in the presence of the Lamb? Who is able to endure this day? Chapter 7 is the answer to that. What does John see instantly after the the people of earth, the evil and the sinful as they face judgment and ask who can stand before before the throne of the Lamb? 
Where does John move? He says he looks into heaven and what does he see? He sees the people of God standing before the Lamb. Judgment Day is not a day of horror. It's not a day of fear. For the faithful, it is a day and time of joy. John goes to heaven and he sees. He sees the people of God being sealed, being dedicated, being held fast, right? The idea of sealing, something that is made sure. Nothing is going to shake this. Nothing is going to change this. Nothing can rip this away. The people of God belonging to God, worshiping God, a beautiful and great day. John looks at this and he starts trying to describe what he sees, right? He's seeing this vision of the people of God being sealed before God, enjoying that they, this new creation, eternity, as they are preparing to enter into it. And he tries to describe it for us. He sees the angels going out to seal the people of God, and he begins to draw on the imagery of the Old Testament and the image of Israel as the people of God. The vision of what John sees in chapter 7 is a vision of all those that believe. The church in its fullest expression, the people of God in its fullest expression, all those who have ever had faith and relationship with God from the beginning of time to the end of time. It's a beautiful image. He tries to describe this for us in two different ways. First, he starts with the people of Israel. John is Jewish. When he thinks of the people of God, what's the image that comes to mind? His own people. The 144,000, though, is an image. It's not an actual number. It's not an actual defined this is how many from each tribe. We know it's not for a couple of very important reasons. First, at least 10 of these tribes on the list no longer exist. They're destroyed. They've been destroyed for over 2,000 years. All the northern tribes, if you know the history of the Old Testament, were destroyed by the Assyrians. They no longer exist. There's no way, unless God is going to resurrect people specifically for this, there is no one to actually call from those tribes. They are lost to history, at least in one sense. We know this is a, an image for another reason. The numbers are nice, big, round numbers. The largest named number in Greek is 1,000. They can count higher than 1,000, but it's always multiples of 1,000. It's the biggest number they have. 12 is also a nice number of completion throughout the Bible. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, so on and so forth. What's 144,000? It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. It's 12,000 from the 12 tribes. It gives you 144,000. These are all numbers of completion, of perfection, of everything being exactly what it's supposed to be. It's not a numerical count. It's not a census. It's John telling you, look, the people of God, no matter where they are, no matter where they've been, the 10 tribes he knows as well as anyone else are gone. Only the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin still exist. But he says it does not matter. All those tribes, every person who had their faith and trust in God is here. The perfect number of them is here. It is complete. God has missed no one. The people of God are all assembled. It's a beautiful image that would resonate with his Jewish readers. But he goes on in verse 9 and he describes this multitude. If you have your Bible in front of you, if you're trying to follow along, the multitude John describes is the 144,000. It's two slices, two bites at the same apple. John is trying to say, I want you to see what I see. The sinners, the evil that are being punished as the six seals open, they asked who can stand, I'll show you who can stand. It's the people whom God has saved. The people whom the Lamb calls and shepherds. And what is this multitude? They are drawn from every corner of the globe. 
This is beautiful, friends. When John describes them, he says, I looked and I saw people that you couldn't count. There's too many of them. They are drawn from every nation, from every tribe, from every language. They are standing before the Lamb. That's who can stand on this day, this day of wrath, this day of judgment when God is righting all wrongs. People from everywhere. The book of Revelation, in some ways, is the final crucible. It's the final question. Satan in the garden wanted to throw a wrench into God's plans. He said, yeah, yeah, God made earth all good. He made people in a relationship with him. I'm going to get them to sin. Ha-ha, I got them to sin. I got them kicked out of the garden. Did Satan win? Did Satan derail the plan of God? Is God now having to punt and he's only going to get a few, the select very, very few from earth's history that might come back in a relationship with him. Right here is the definitive no. This is the nail in the coffin. What does John see? John doesn't see just a few people throughout history, the few that God barely managed to eke and save. He says, I see people beyond count. I see people from every corner of the globe. They are standing and they are worshiping the living God. They did not believe the lie of the serpent. Friends, human history is characterized with sin, is it not? The world is broken, the world is painful. But let us never forget, God wins history. This history is not something where God is having to eke out kind of a stalling game until he comes again. God redeems and God saves. Our king is the ruler of time. He is the one who has declared the end from the beginning. Human, uh, uh, sin did not have the last word. The serpent did not turn humanity from God. But God has saved people from everywhere. A multitude beyond count. And these people, ourselves included, friends. What do we sing when we stand before that throne? Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This song is picked up again with amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is a beautiful picture, the two sides of Judgment Day, the horror for those who now realize that they are going to be held accountable for their actions, and the glory, the joy, the sheer love in seeing God win in seeing God save his people and then lead his people. Friends, as Revelation keeps going forward, we're going to see these echoes of Genesis showing up time and time again because where we are going by the end of this book is where the book began. The Bible began. The story of the Bible ends in much the same place as it began with the people of God living and dwelling with God, ruling and reigning over now its new creation being the people you and I were created to be. Revelation is a beautiful kind of counterpoint to Genesis. Genesis is the story of Satan trying to overthrow God's plans, trying to unwrite and undo history, and Revelation is a systematic breakdown saying, no, serpent, you did not win. God wins, God rules, and God reigns. Friends, this chapter should have special joy for us because, as this is talking about the future and the church gathered before God who is present in that story, you and I, we are reading about this story now. One day we will be partaking in the story. We will be standing around the throne. All those that have come before us, all those that we love dearly and have lost, all those that came before them, 
all those that are coming after us that we will never have the opportunity maybe to meet in this life, they will be there with us. All who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will together stand and praise our God. Friends, let Revelation 7 be the chapter you remember out of this book. Revelation is not a book of fear, not a book of confusing and difficult symbols. It is a book that shows our God ruling and reigning. I want all of us to take this lesson. I'm going to be preaching to myself just as much as anyone else right now. The joy at the end of the journey is abundant life with the Lamb. The journey of life can be very difficult, can be very painful. As we press forward each day, we encounter events that cause us to shed tears, to go through pain. But did you hear how the story ends? The lamb in the center is their shepherd, the shepherd of all those who have placed their faith and trust in him. He will guide them to the springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There is a joy that waits for us at the end of the journey. Remember that. Remember that during the hard days. It doesn't make the days less hard, but it reminds us that those hard days are not the end of the story. They're not the end of the journey. Don't look ahead to the future, whatever the future may hold with fear. The future may hold difficulty, the future may hold pain, but the future, the true future, holds unlimited and infinite joy. This end of history that we read here in Genesis or Revelation 7 is actually just the beginning of eternity an eternity with our God. Can you bow your heads? Let's pray.